This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Morning. Morning. Got that. You just tore down walls energy over there. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the good gift of your son. Thank you for the instruction that comes through your apostle, Paul, uh, in this letter that he wrote to the Colossian church. Lord, I pray uh, that even as we consider who you are and what you're doing, that what would be our instinct, what would be our first instinct would to be to give you praise and to give you glory and to give you honor and credit for what you're doing in and through your people, Lord. Thank you that you dwell in us. Thank you that you are working to transform us more into the image of your son. And I pray that as we set our minds more on the heavenly realities, on you and your glory, that we'd be more effective for you on this earth, that we'd be more loving, that we'd be more kind, that we'd be more gracious. And that more importantly than that, we would be closer to you, our God and our heavenly father. So I thank you for this time, and I thank you uh, for this passage. Uh, in your name I pray, amen. All right, so we're uh, in our Colossian series. We're talking about being uh, heavenly-minded for earthly good. Um, and we've been, uh, you know, I think kind of hitting it over and over again for a few chapters here, uh, this idea that dwelling on the things that are above um, considering and meditating on, on God and our, our Savior in heaven is what ultimately stirs our affections. It's what changes our hearts and uh, what leads us to, to be more kind and more gracious or more patient or have more peace or, or have more joy. That's sort of this, this broad theme that's going through the whole book of Colossians. And Paul, uh, most commentators think that Paul is writing this letter because he's worried that they're going to go astray. He's worried that they're going to sort of be captivated by something else. Something else is going to draw their affections. Something else is going to stir their heart. And, and, And while they're drawn towards something else, he knows that whatever it is they're drawn toward, whatever it is that captivates them, is what forms them. Whatever it is that that captivates us, whatever it is that we're impressed with, whatever it is that we dwell on, that we think about, that we consider, actually has a very transforming effect in who we are, which is why when we talk about our mission, we say that we want to be formed by God. We want to bring good to others as we're formed by, hopefully, you know, we couldn't put that, hopefully, as we're hopefully formed by God together. Um, so hopefully bring good, hopefully, you know, all these things, so... Uh, so Paul is, is telling us that he, he knows as he's worried about the Colossians being led astray, as he's worried about them being, as he said um, in the previous section, these, these plausible arguments. There's other things that can draw our affections that are very plausible, that aren't like, like unrealistic, that are, he uses the word plausible, that are draw my affections away. And he wants us he wants us to draw our affections upward, so he's sort of exhorting us and helping us think through that a little bit more in this section. And I wanted to kind of start 
first was sort of the beginning and the end of both the letter of Colossians and also this section. So if you go in your little journals or in your Bible, you flip back over to to Colossians 1, uh, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's the way he kind of starts the letter. And I think he's doing this because he knows that as we dwell on the things that are above, as we are heavenly minded, he knows that's where we're going to get grace and peace from God himself. And he actually finishes the letter this way. Look at the very last verse in in Colossians chapter four. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Grace be with you. And it's, it's this reality that if as we are in the presence of God, as we have Christ, this great mystery we talked about last week in us, this reality that if we have an a view of God, if we are heavenly minded, if we're considering him, the grace and peace comes from him and that's what he wants in the letter. Which is all well and good, um, but we don't, it's just not, I mean, we know better than that. It's like not that easy. It's not that simple. I can't just talk about grace from God, go in peace and the rest of your Sunday afternoon will be nothing but chill and nirvana. (laughs) Right? Just like that. Paul knows that. And this comes up in scripture quite a bit because there's a sort of this internal battle between us. Internally, there's a battle between us, between what the Bible would call the old creation or the flesh and the new creation and the spirit. The inner man and the outer man. I switched those around. So inner man is over here. But but there's this battle between us, between the flesh and the spirit, the ways it's often sort of, Uh, presented to us in scripture. And so at the end of the section that was just read for us, this is kind of where we're going. He's trying to, he knows that there's this battle. He knows that there's this war between, there's, of course, I want grace and peace from God, my heavenly father, who doesn't want grace and peace, who doesn't want to see his glory and have joy, but I don't. (laughs) And there's this battle and there's this battle because there's something in me called the flesh that's pulling me away from that. There's something in me called the flesh that's, that's steering me away from being captivated by God himself. And Paul's saying, I know this battle exists and I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to convince you that the only way you can deal with the flesh is through being captivated by Jesus himself. Amen. The only way you can deal with the flesh, the only way you can really wrestle with this battle between the inner person and the outer person is by being captivated by Jesus himself and not by other things in the world. And that's kind of how he ends this section. This is the sort of right before chapter three. In verse 23, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here's the important part. If you want grace and peace and you're captivated by all these other things, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There are no, there's no value here to really transform you, to really stir your affections, to really form you and change you so that you're enjoying more of the glory and the beauty of God. The only one, the only one that can do that is Jesus himself. And so we're kind of focused on this morning 
this idea of what captivates you forms you. What captivates you forms you. So if you're taking notes, that's sort of the sentence we're going to hover around. And this, this was really illustrated to me when I was in California this, just this week. Um, Denver, we pride ourselves on being like outside people. Like we like the outdoors. We, you know, we wear our like athleisure wear. Um, we're ready to go on a hike if we need to go on a hike whenever. Denver's a very outdoorsy group of people. But when I went to the West Coast, I did not feel like I fit in at all. I, I, felt, I felt like very, I mean, even this, like, you know, I didn't wear flannel, but it just, you just felt like you were in another environment altogether. And I think the reason for that is because they're formed by something very different. I mean, we know what we're captured by here. We walk outside and we look at the mountains, the skiing, the, the, the you know, getting away in the mountains. We even talked about that this morning or the hot springs or the hikes. They were like we can, you know, if you get a good view of the West, you can see what Denver is captivated by and, and our culture is kind of formed around that. You know, if you're this side of the apartment complex, it's significantly more if you're over on this side of the apartment complex. Like architecture is formed around what captivates us. And the same thing is in California. What, what captivates the West Coast? The ocean. Yeah. You look, you're just standing on a pier and you look out into like infinity. At least the mountains seem like they stop right there. But when you look, you just see this like grand expanse. And I think Bridget kind of spoiled it for me. She's like, do you know that the average six foot high person can only see three miles out? And I was like, oh, okay, well, that seems really far. I know I can only see three miles and it goes for thousands. <laughs> but but this, this, the, the ocean is something that just captivates that culture. And so because they're captivated by the ocean, every restaurant you in feels like you're on outdoor furniture, even if you're not in outdoor furniture. Every, every, uh, every building is, is, is shaped on the hill to face that way and to look at the ocean like all the trails are lining the ridge that can oversee the ocean. The, everyone dresses differently. The, the sports are different. They're, the, you, no, one, no one got together on the West Coast and said, okay, guys, here's the plan so that we're formed a certain way so that we now fit over here with the ocean. <laughs> they didn't get together and do that. Just naturally, as you're captivated by something, as you're enraptured with something, you can't help but be formed by that. You can't help but be formed by that. Paul knows this. So he wants us to be formed by focusing on what captivates us. What is it that captivates us? Look at verse 6. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. He actually, he's referencing a verse uh, one, verse 10 earlier. Where he talks about walking in a, a manner worthy of Christ. Walk, walking in him, walking in a manner that's worthy of him. The Proverbs uses the, this idea of a path, a, a beaten path on the ground. It's just a kind of a, a Bible-y word to say the character of your life. How does my life look? How am I formed? How my walk is, is basically saying, how am I formed? 
So he's addressing this idea of, of, of us being formed, of us looking like and imaging Jesus. He says, as you received Christ Jesus, I just told you that Jesus himself is that this great mystery that he's in you via the Holy Spirit. So be formed or, or walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. He's sort of uh, repeating some same things earlier. He says, stable and steadfast. Saying, you have received this wonderful mystery, which is Christ in you. And I'm calling you to be formed a certain way. And in order to be formed, you need to also be captivated by him. You need to be built up. You need to be rooted. You need to be established. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use all the possible words I can to show you that if you want to be formed by God, if you want to be transformed, you need to be captivated in who Jesus is and what he's doing. Amen. That needs to be the thing that is at the forefront of your mind or you're going to be formed by something else. You're going to be formed by something lesser than that because we're all, we're all, in a sense, captivated by things in the world. He mentions Thanksgiving. This comes up a lot in the letter and we'll talk about it in a minute. But, but let's keep going and see what he says in verse eight. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy and empty words are kind of this idea of where we even get uh, wisdom from. And he, he qualifies that. He's just trying to explain, okay, well, what does it mean to be captivated? You know, I don't know of that. My brother-in-law graduated with a philosophy degree. He's the only one I know has been captivated by philosophy. So I don't, no one else is really at risk of that, um, I think, right now. So what does he mean by that? What is he, what is he trying to say? Why, why is this such a big danger? Why is this something that could captivate me and form me? And he says right here, according, he kind of gives us like, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he's trying to give us categories to say, what are some things that captivate us that are not according to Christ? What are some things that draw our affections or that, that wrestle with our heads or that, that we are thinking about even now maybe? <laughs> Those are the things that captivate us, that draw us away that are not according to who Jesus is and what he's doing. And, the, and I think the words are, you know, if you have an ESV Bible, it's got a little two there, and it kind of tells you that there's another way to translate that. I'm not sure element, the elemental spirits is really helpful. There's a very specific word for spirit. Um, it's not the one that's used here. But I think what they're trying to say in the little footnotes is elemental principles, the, the foundational things of the material world. What's something that could lead us astray uh, not according to Christ? Anything material in the world that seems plausible and makes sense to us. Anything we can observe in nature that, that seems right, that seems correct, that seems like something we should be concerned about. It's plausible, it makes sense, and that draws us away. It's not according to Christ. It's according to these elemental, fundamental principles of the created world. 
which in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad because even the created world reflects the glory and beauty of God. But they, they get twisted when they're, when they're put up against Jesus himself and they're not according to him. So he's telling us to be careful. There's a lot of plausible things. There's a lot of things in this material world that are good, that make sense, but that can captivate us and steer us away from Jesus himself. The other phrase he uses is, according to human tradition. And I think every time I heard that, I'm like, well, I don't really celebrate the holidays. We don't do birthdays. I'm trying to think whatever else. I was like, we don't do tradition things, you know? So that's where I go when I think about tradition. I'm just like, I'm boring, so I save myself from being captivated by those things. And it's, a, it's another word that we kind of like have some, maybe some baggage on. And when he's saying human tradition, he's saying there are plausible things that mankind has known about for a long time that have been very effective for some people. There's some reasonable wisdom in the world that the, this sort of perceived knowledge, we all, common sense maybe is another way to say it. There are things that we believe in the world that just intuitively make sense that can steer us away from being captivated by Christ. He's writing this letter to the Corinthian believe, or to the Colossian believers, because just like us, there are a lot of things in this world that can captivate us that are not according to Christ. There is wisdom that we can like perceived wisdom, or or just something that the world has known, or or. Uh, common sense things that can just make sense to us and steer us away from Christ. He's telling us this because it's dangerous. So think about that. What are some things that captivate you, that pull you away from who Christ is and what he's doing? We all have those things. I was talking to Andrew this morning, and I said, it's hard not to just talk about cycling all morning, you know? <laughs> it's fun to share in those things, and there's, there's wonderful things that God uses to point us back to him in the world. I'm not trying to say that the beauty in creation or the wisdom that comes from examining God's creation, there's anything wrong with that, but these things pull us away from Christ. We're less captivated with him because we're captivated with something else. So think about that. What captivates you? Because whatever captivates you is what is forming you. Necessarily. Whatever you're thinking about, maybe some other questions as you sort of, you know, we don't use the word captivate a whole lot. What's something that you daydream about? What's something that maybe brings you shame when it doesn't go the way you want it to go? What's something that ruins your day? What's something that makes your day? 
What's something you can't help but look forward to? All of us have things that captivate us. And those things are necessarily, just like California looks very different than Colorado. Whether you know it or not, those things that captivate you are forming you one way or the other. They are changing who you are. And Paul knows that and he's saying, I don't want you to be taken captive by those things. I want you to be captive with Christ himself. Verse nine. He goes back to this over and over again in Colossians. I think this is why people like Colossians so much is because he consistently reminds us on why we should be captivated with Christ. He consistently reminds us why he is the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most powerful Verse nine, he says, I don't want you to be captive by other things because in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. Wrap your head around that sentence for a second. The whole, the entire fullness of God dwells in Christ. All the things in this world that captivate us, all the things in the world that we think are beautiful and wonderful and draw our attention away from Christ come from our creator. He's the one that's displaying this beauty. All of these beautiful things are meant to draw us closer and deeper into God himself. And in our sin, we sort of, our flesh twists that around and makes it about the thing and not about the creator of the thing. He's saying everything you could ever imagine or like that's good in the world, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ and you have been filled in him. So you think about that. What, what, what brings me a measure of shame? What ruins my day? What makes me feel like I'm incapable what is the thing that I'm, I'm captivated with and that I swirl around? Paul's saying, hey, God dwells in you. That's sufficient. That's a huge deal. This is the, the mystery of Christ in you. That's what I want you to be captivated by. That's why I want your, your, your thoughts and your mind to be swirling around. That's why I want the rhythms of your day to remind you of. That's why I want the thing to bring you joy because God himself decided to dwell in you, a sinner, and bring you into his presence for forever. Think about, sometimes we're captivated by plausible things because they come from like a reputable source. Like, oh, well, um, this is really important because this authority or this, you know, not to get into how to filter through all of that and just the mess that the internet has made for reputable sources. We'll set all that aside for a second. But, but it's easy to be captivated by something that, that looks very important or maybe that's coming from someone or from a source that is very important. 
There's something to be said for right authority. But is that authority according to the world or is it according to Christ? Because Paul says right here, if if we're going to be captivated by Christ, we have to remember because he created everything, he is the head of all rule and authority. He is the most certain source because he spoke everything into existence. If we're going to be captivated by any rule or authority or source, it needs to be from the creator himself. It needs to be according to Christ. And he reminds us what what he said about us. Because sometimes we don't even believe what God is saying about what has happened to us. One of the things we repeat at Emmaus is we don't define ourselves by what we have done. We define ourselves by what God has done. So Paul is reminding us, what has God done that defines who we are? In 11, he says, in him, in Christ, who dwells in you, you were circumcised without a circumcision made with hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Um, We don't have to get into all the details of circumcision, but the short of it is, no pun intended, um, you, (laughs) you throw a piece away. It's no good anymore. It's cut off. It's gone. It's never coming back. That's what he says. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh. This is the reality of what God has done in and through you. He has tossed that out. He dwells and works powerfully in you. He's capable of bringing you into the presence and the glory of God. There is no, there really is no more battle between the flesh and the spirit because the flesh has been tossed out. It's as good as done. That's the, that's the reality of what God has done for you. So yes, we do struggle. There's, there's, this, there's this, we're sort of waiting for that to be revealed. We, we believe this by faith now. We believe what God has said about us, even though we don't see it that way. Someday we'll see it that way and it's gonna be amazing but we believe what he said about us, that he has conquered the flesh. He kind of goes on and uses baptism, another another sort of uh, instrument of communicating these truths to us. He says, we've been been buried with him in baptism. This idea that you've you've gone under. (laughs) The flesh has died. It has no more power. It has no more strength. We've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were, past tense, dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God now made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Everything is forgiven. This is what God has said about you. by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's the the biggest section in this little passage right here as he's saying, I want you to be captivated by Christ because I do want you to walk worthily. I do want you to be formed. I want something to change about your life 
And it's almost like he knows where we're going to go, where we say, okay, well, tell me what to do. He's like, no, I want you to be captivated by what Jesus has already done. Or that will form you. That's what will actually transform and make a difference in how you act and who you are and, and, and whether you have peace and grace from God our Father. You have to believe what God has said. Verse 15, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Put them to open shame. He's like, you know what should be ashamed. You know what should be discredited. is all these lesser things that captivate us. Find me a material process in the world with the right amount of research that will raise you from the dead. Find me wisdom that is known and understood or common sense in the world that says my humiliation leads to my exaltation. So we can look at what Christ has done. We can look at how now the the creator of the universe humbled himself to the point of death on a cross is now sitting ruling and reigning on his throne. That was not the path that anybody else recommended. And now he has put them to shame. He's put them to shame. What captivates you will form you. Doesn't matter what that is. Whatever captivates you will form and change you. And the danger is because of sin, lots of other things captivate us. And Paul's saying, hey, I don't want that. I want you to be captivated by who Christ is and what he's doing. I want that to be in the forefront of your mind. I want you to remember that the fullness of God dwells in you. You're sufficient because Christ is sufficient. So he applies this. He knows about the battle and he wants to help us. How do we take advantage of these resources in this glory and this majesty that is Christ, as we're captivated by him. Look at the first thing he says. Verse 16, therefore, based on all the stuff I just said, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from, the, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, we haven't had any new moon festivals uh, recently or uh, worship of angels as far as I know. Um, But he's explaining, he says, these things are a shadow that are to come. 
He's actually talking about a lot of the Old Testament ways of worship. Uh, especially in that first part, when he says uh, Sabbath or festival or new moon, these are a shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's told us already that at different points that the Old Testament is, is pointing towards and fulfilling and helping us be more and more captivated with who Christ is and what he's done. Amen. And in, in, in kind of a sense here, he's saying, don't let, this is sort of the, the, the religion or the, the, the sort of thinking of the day. He's like, don't let the religiosity disqualify you. Don't let the religiosity disqualify you. Amen. Uh, most of us are not from here and have grown up in places where there is religiosity. And there are certain things that we feel like, whether truly or not, or some things we feel like people do look down on us for. You know, it was, you know, I, I actually really love the church that I came from when I got converted in Omaha, but I, me and Bridget were the weirdos who were like in our mid-30s and didn't have three kids already. Uh, and it wasn't for lack of trying. But you feel that. It feels disqualifying. It doesn't feel, doesn't feel the same. And I think we could probably find, a, you know, we could all probably tell our own story where we've walked into sort of a, a religious experience, even a good one. I mean, he's talking about the Old Testament and saying, hey, this is shadows that point to Christ. There's value there. There's good things there that draw us in to be more and more captivated with Jesus. But if this is where your focus is, if this is the thing that you think qualifies you, if this is a thing that you think gives you some sense of superiority, you're not, this is according to human tradition. This is not according to Christ. That's not the fullness of deity dwelling in you bodily. Saying this is where you need to focus. This is what needs to captivate you because this is what's going to actually form you and change you into who you are. It says if you believe, if you're captivated by who Christ is and what he's done, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't get caught up in the religiosity. Verse 20. We're kind of pulling back what Jesus has done. He says, if Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental principles of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that are all perish as they are used. That all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. Now we can, we can dig into the, the historical things in, Coloss in Colossae that Paul may have been referencing. And I think there's some value in that and getting getting some, um, some context to some, maybe some specific things he's talking about. There's this idea that it, it could have been um, even just things that they did in the, in the sort of, I want to say secular, but pagan temples of the day. There, there's sort of rules and regulations and, and ways to sort of do things right. He's saying, but you died to the elemental spirits of the world or elemental principles is what it said earlier. He's, he's reminding us and I think, he, I think this is, 
He says, a human precepts and teaching. I think this is all kind of subsumed in this idea that he's like, if you were to approach the world in light of human principles, and I want to say strictly materialistically, if you're to approach the, this, this fallen, broken world with your own wisdom, even wisdom that comes from this good creation, and you, you're trying to use that to draw near to God or to have peace or to have joy, it's not going to be sufficient. And he's comparing that to what Christ has done. He brings back his death. What are, the, what are the foundational scientific principles that lead to resurrection? <laughs> there isn't any. And again, that's, that's good. You know, that's good and beautiful. I'm glad we can observe creation and we can learn things about what God is doing. But if we're, if we're doing something according to Christ, if we're trying to have peace and joy that comes from God, our Heavenly Father, if we're trying to rest in his presence there are not material things in this world that are sufficient to raise us up so that we could be in the presence and glory of our Father. Amen. It's not possible. Verse 23. And I think this is sort of encompassing all the previous stuff because he, he warned us before he doesn't want us to be taken captive. Verse 23 says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, sort of forcing ourselves to be formed a certain way. It has an appearance of wisdom and asceticism and severity of the body. It's like, like I'm, I'm following all the right rules. I have like the strictest diet so that I can be happy. I have the most articulate budget so that I can be in this place where I have joy and peace. I'm on the most rigorous training plan, whatever it is. I have this asceticism that I can, I got, maybe I'm at work 14 hours a day so that I can achieve this certain thing. He's like, all of these things have the appearance of wisdom. They genuinely do. They have the appearance of wisdom. Spurgeon said something uh, about Christian maturity. He said, it's not really like determining what's right from wrong. Christian maturity is determining what's right from almost right. These things have an appearance of wisdom. They wouldn't captivate us if they didn't appear like good ideas. But here's the problem. There's no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They can't change us and give us more peace and joy. These things have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Everything inside us, because of the fall, wants our joy and peace to be not from God the Father. <laughs> the only counter to that, the only way that we can reorient that and win that battle, so to speak, between the spirit and the flesh, 
is if we're captivated with Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he continues to do. If we're captivated with Christ, we shouldn't judge ourselves based on what we did or did not do. If we're filled with the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in Christ in us, we shouldn't need things that appear wise, that look like they'll change and shape us because Christ himself will change who we are. We have to be captivated with him. One thing I think Paul, we'll kind of end with this. If we're captivated with Christ, if he is who captivates us, it will form us. It will change who we are. Necessarily. It has to. One of the things Paul's sort of been weaving through this whole letter is the call to give thanks to him. Is a call to rejoice in what he's done. Is a call to recognize where Jesus has been working in me and in others so that I can begin to see him more clearly and more and more drawn to what he's doing. Amen. Which is why I think in verse six, he says, as you've received Christ, walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. So he starts the letter by telling us how often he's rejoicing that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. He finishes the letter with telling us to keep watch in prayer with thanks, thankfulness. And we, even in our, our prayer time in the morning as we consider how God is working in and through us, it's hard to recognize that. It just doesn't, we don't just like default say, wow, look what God is doing over here. We don't like accidentally fall into that. It, it takes some work to see what God is doing. It takes some thoughtfulness to say, where is he stirring my affections for him? How can I praise him and thank him and worship him for that? It takes some thought to see where he's orchestrating things in my life and say, that's God working, that's not me. I want it to be me. I want to think that I can do these things. And even when I stop to thank the Lord for what he is doing, everything in my heart is saying, no. Don't recognize him for that. Because if you're captivated by him, you're going to be formed. You're going to be transformed even more. You're going to see how he's working even easier. But that's the beauty the power of the gospel. Amen. It is bearing fruit and growing in the world and in you. That's wonderful. It is bearing fruit and growing. And we can be thankful for that. And the more we build that reflex of thanksgiving, the more we're actually captivated by Jesus himself and what he's doing, the more we will be formed. And we can have that grace and peace that comes from God our Father. So let's pray and thank him for what he's already done. Father, I thank you for your just great patience with us. 
Lord, you have given us so many wonderful and beautiful things in this creation that are designed to point us towards you, that are designed to help us see your glory and your majesty. And Lord, there's daily, hourly, we go about surrounded by your majesty and we, in our sin, often don't recognize it. Lord, I thank you that you have filled us with Christ. I thank you that you have given us a powerful savior that's capable of transforming our hearts and minds and, and capturing us with your glory and your majesty and your beauty. Lord, I pray that you would just give us wisdom when we're discouraged, when we feel like all is lost, when we don't know what to do, I pray that your spirit would work and say, Lord, help me recognize where you've been working. Help me recognize what you've said about me. Help me recognize who Jesus is and what he's doing so that I could be more and more captivated with him. We need your help for that, but we know that you work. We know that the gospel will bear fruit and grow. And we thank you and we praise you and you worship you for that. In your name I pray, amen. amen.